welcome to season three of the Media Careers podcast. We're delighted to bring you more incredible industry guests who are working across the film and media industry. The Media Careers podcast is delivered in partnership with Interfilm, supported by the BFI awarding National Lottery funding. Please don't forget to hit the little subscribe button so you can be kept up to date with all of the latest episodes and also help us ensure that we reach more people. We really hope you enjoy this episode. Nadine Marsh-Edwards is an Emmy-nominated RTS and BAFTA award-winning film and television producer and is the co-founder and executive producer at Greenacre Films. Nadine graduated from Goldsmiths University, where she studied mass communications and sociology, when she also co-founded the groundbreaking collective Sankofa Film and Video and was a former executive producer for BBC Drama Scotland 2. This is where she gained extensive experience in primetime scripted television, exec producing a number of returning network shows over a seven-year period. Greenacre Films was established in 2012 with her production partner Amanda Jenks, and in 2018 their company made history producing the musical Been So Long, which was Netflix's biggest ever UK feature acquisition at the time. Greenacre Films' 2020 production Unsaid Stories led the way in UK TV production. Commissioned by ITV and released at the height of the global pandemic, the series enlisted an array of Britain's most talented black screenwriters, directors, producers and on-screen talent to deliver its four-part reckoning on the zeitgeist, explicitly and poignantly inspired by the global Black Lives Matter movement. We discuss the exceptional production process that happened for this series in the episode today. Nadine's other TV credits include the Emmy-nominated, BAFTA and RTS-winning Joe All Alone, a four-part series for the BBC, and she was also the executive producer of The Grey Man for the BBC. In addition to this, Greenacre Films also recently produced Riches, a series for ITV and Amazon. Alongside this, she has amazing feature film credits including Bargy on the Beach, written by Mira Sayal and directed by Gorinda Chada, Berlin Teddy Award-winning Looking for Langston, written and directed by Isaac Julian, and many others. Nadine was the winner of the Disney Plus Contribution to the Medium Award at the Women in Film and Television Awards in 2022, and I think we can all agree that this is utterly deserved. I think it's fair to say that Nadine has had an incredible and dynamic career, and I really can't wait to hear more about it. Nadine, welcome to the Media Careers Podcast. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. What an incredible career you've had. I can't wait to chat to you all about it today. But in this podcast we always start at the beginning we love to find out what people were like as a young person so that we can kind of understand their trajectory into the industry so can you remember what you were like as a young person probably very annoying (laughs) (laughs) in what way were you annoying (laughs) you know I think I was quite a combination child you know in a way from a very very early age I loved reading like properly loved reading. The local library in Archway saw me every week and I sort of really quickly worked my way through the children's books and went on to the teenage books. And, you know, so I was just someone who literally fell in love with the written word as soon as I can remember. So that was one part of me. The other part of me was that I was very sporty. I loved rounders and netball and, you know, just anything to do with running around and being active. So that was another stage for me. And at one point, I I thought I was going to be a PE teacher when I grew up. I did so, you? Yeah, yeah. But then I found disco. 
So, <laughs> so then I started to go out a lot. You know, I went out clubbing from pro- probably too young. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I just always had a good time. I just always loved being around other people. I loved music. You know, I loved going to Saturday morning pictures when that was a thing. And just being around other people and and meeting people from different backgrounds. I think that was always quite a big thing because when I started to go out, you know, because it was soul music was becoming a big thing and reggae music was a big thing. And those clubs were populated by very different types of people. And I sort of straddled both camps. I felt very easily doing that. You know, it was easy for me to do that. And not everyone did that, but I did. And I just didn't understand why it shouldn't be so so I think just being around different types of people doing a variety of things is sort of in my DNA and it's still there yeah amazing goodness there's so much in there the love of books did that come from family or was it was it a natural thing that just came to you was it were you encouraged through school like how did you come so passionate about stories your mum okay my mum my mum encouraged me to read I mean we didn't really have lots of books in the house I Mm. mean we had the Encyclopedia Britannica, like everybody <laughs> did back then. This is sort of obviously pre-internet. So, you know, if you wanted to find out anything, you either had that set of books in your house and or you went to the local library. Mm. So, you know, from as early as I can remember, the local library was a really, really big part of my life. I felt yeah. very comfortable there. And, you know, my mum would take me and encourage me to read and I mean, obviously, when you go to school, they encourage you to read. But I think the thing about when you go to a library, either on your own or with a parent or a sibling, you get to choose the books you want to read. Mm. So I think that sort of allowed me to have a variety of books. And I really very early became obsessed with horses and horse riding and Scotland. (laughs) And Scotland. And so there was there was a series of books I can't remember I should have checked there called something like Alice in the Highland and it was like in their summer holidays they do like investigations but part of it was horse riding and beautiful scenery and Scotland so it's quite funny for me that I ended up working for BBC Scotland and actually went to see these places Amazing. so yeah, unbeknown to me that connection was sort of sewn in my brain from a very earlier we're talking like seven eight something like that yeah maybe there was something psychologically kind of unconscious yeah. of like you've got a game work in Scotland it was there, it it was there. <laughs> and, be- and before the disco started were you, yeah. were you academic did you enjoy studying or was I did you know I was quite academic um for one brief moment um people people teachers my mum thought I would be a doctor but that dropped off the agenda as soon as I got thrown out of physics. <laughs> so I think, you know, that and, and maths weren't, I just, I don't know, they just weren't for me at that stage, the way they were taught then. And I really, mm. I really regret that now, but I was a bit of a joker in class. I was probably not the easiest to, I was never rude. I was just a bit funny. And so having that combination of being a bit funny and a bit good at sports and, you know, a bit bright. I kind of managed to get through school and enjoy it. I went every day. I never bunked off. I liked going to school. I liked seeing my mates. I liked finding out different things. I loved geography. 
that was I went to a separate college to do biology because there was a a clash timetable clash so I couldn't do it uh, so I did that you know when I was like 15 or something in evening classes wow um, that's dedication Nadine that's like yeah I think there's always been a little bit of me that was like well if there's things I like I have to find a way to do it and then then there was this I don't know if it exists now there was a thing where you could do an OA where you it was called general studies Mm. Uh, I had spared I don't know a couple of lessons and I went again to a different college to do that and I really learned a lot about myself doing that course and I think it really sums up me because it's general knowledge yeah (laughs) and it meant that I could sort of piece together in a way a timetable to do that exam in a way that I wanted and I could study things that I was really interested and I vaguely remember I did something about carnival there was a big essay about carnivals and I loved it I really loved it for that year I did it so I think I can be really driven if it's something I really like and I can be a total pain if it's something I really don't like (laughs) so now we know not in a rude way but I think (laughs) You have to find ways to engage people, I think, whatever the subject is. Yeah. And, I, you know, back in the day, you know, it maths and physics and chemistry and all those things are really super important. And I really, really wish that I had paid more attention to. And I really encourage my kids to pay more attention to. So they did much better than I did on that front. It just was taught in quite a boring way then. Yeah, yeah. And also you were interested in what you were interested in and then and then I love that that you went after that as well that you as you say you were so driven that actually I was going to go and do general studies I was going to go and do biology you weren't going to like miss out on those opportunities that's incredible I love that yeah was the film industry remotely on your radar at this point no absolutely not it's something you watched it's it's something you went to on a Saturday morning and when you were home you turned on the tv and you watched programs I had zero connection to it. Nobody in my family had any connection to it. I might as well said I wanted to be a deep sea diver. <laughs> so what were, so you mentioned that your family hoped you might be a doctor at one point and it might be a PE teacher. When you were leaving secondary school, what yeah. what was kind of a career plan for you? Did you? There wasn't one. No. There wasn't one. I mean, I did A-levels, I did a couple of A-levels and I got, I don't know if they still did, I got an unconditional offer to Goldsmiths College, which was good and stroke bad because once you have that, what's your incentive to do anything? Zero. (laughs) So I wanted to travel and uh, so I decided to take a gap year and I thought, oh, well, you can sign on and get unemployment benefits. So I went to sign on and I was going to save up and, I don't know, just save up, do Saturday jobs, get unemployment benefit and just go off. And I went there and they went, oh, you've got A-levels. We have a job here. You can come and work here. So my oh, no. that, that wasn't really, the plan. <laughs> it really wasn't the plan. So I ended up working at a social security office. Did you? And, you know, it was one of the most interesting jobs I've ever had I really learned a lot I've always been political to one degree or another and I think working in an institution like that where you see people really in need really really in need trying to navigate a system at that point was really complicated Mm. and um 
so when I was doing that, once I realized that was my fate and I was going to be there for at least another nine months, I started to do volunteer work at an advice center to try and help people navigate that system because then and now lots of people don't actually apply for the benefits that they're entitled to yeah because they don't know or don't understand the system because there's so many barriers there yeah absolutely so I suppose I've always been someone who sort of if I see something that's not right I will say or try and do something to the best of my abilities Mm. um I'll, I'll give it a go so but I met some brilliant people there and I learned a lot and it meant that by the time I went to uni, I was really happy to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There was... must have been quite a lot of life experience in that short period of time as well. As you say, you're meeting all walks of society, all yeah. who, as you say, all who are struggling, trying to navigate the system. That must have been quite an intense period as well before you... And yeah. in complete com- difference to the university life that you were about yeah, to go totally, on and leave. Totally. And it was... I realised, you know, there's a lot of really good people working there you know these were not ogres these were people who also wanted to help and so I think between us you know there were a lot of younger people who'd either just left uni or were also doing a gap year and there were people who'd been there for like 25 30 years who'd sort of show you the ropes and one of my first jobs oh my god I was asked to sort sort out the stationary room they actually said cupboard it was a room it was full of Oh, I mean, I've never seen so much paperwork in my life. And it was very daunting. But do you know what? The good thing about doing it was I knew what those forms were. So when someone said, can you have a BA 2542? <laughs> I knew where it was and I knew what it was. So, you know, out of even the most boring jobs, you can learn something. That was yeah. a good lesson. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So then you go on to Goldsmiths. Yes. Do a degree. How yeah. was How was the uni experience for you? Well, it was interesting. I mean, because I went there initially to just do a sociology degree. And after about two weeks, I just thought, oh, I I don't know if this is quite enough. I think there's something else I could be doing. And I was always interested in stories, reading. um, I don't know, just doing... I just needed something that was a bit different. I didn't know what it was. Mm. I spoke to a few people, you know, around campus because it's a weird campus goldsmiths it's it's not a you know it's a, it's a town it's a city it's not a you're not away you're not in the countryside anywhere mm. but I managed to talk to some people and I met people who were doing this course and it was a very new course I think it was only the second year that it had been running um, and I think that's something that's really quite different you know back then there were maybe two or three places in the country you could study film and television or mass media um, so we were all on a learning curve and when they told me what they were doing, I just thought, oh, this sounds good. You get a camera, you watch films, you write a few essays, that could be good. And I managed to persuade them to let me swap course. So it was a double degree. So I did mass communications and I still did the sociology that I loved. Um, so I got the best of both worlds, actually. Yeah. Again, just met some really brilliant people from all walks of life. I never felt out of place there I'm 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 still friends with a lot of people not necessarily on my course but you know when you hang out in the canteen you know it it was a good experience for me and it allowed me to explore a lot um the course wasn't quite what I expected I thought it'd be much more wandering around the streets with a camera Mm. but 
this was actually very heavy theory, semiotics and blah, blah. Uh, but even that I learned a lot from. You know, it's like I suppose I try and make the best of what's thrown at me. Mm. Even if initially it's something I think, oh, I don't quite understand this or I don't really know why I'm being forced to do this. You know, eventually I joined the dots. Yeah, so yeah you find the connection. Yeah, I'm really glad I did it and I'm really glad I did it there. Yeah. So what was the next move for you then? Were you thinking all oh, film industry, TV industry, or was it maybe sociology? Like how how were you kind of thinking about next steps and kind of getting a first job in the big wide world? It was a combination. So I think there were two or three prongs to what was going on for me. I mean, number one, there were very few courses that existed like that one in the country, as I've said. Mm. Uh, two, there were very few people who looked like me from diverse backgrounds at the university full stop, let yeah. alone doing the course. Yeah. And, you know, it was during the time of Thatcher. So politics was very high on the agenda. There'd been the Deptford fire, you know, in South London, you know, yeah. people, people were suffering in many, you know, economic, looking the way you look caused issues. We had the National Front. I mean, it was... It was like, hard, right? It was a tough place. It was a really mm. tough place to be for, for many of us. And so I was sort of looking for ways to try and combine all that thinking that was going on around me and, and trying to express how we were all feeling. And uh, I had a tutor called William Rayburn who worked at Goldsmiths, but he also worked at St. Martin's. And he said, oh, I'm tutoring someone over there. I think you should meet this guy. His name's Isaac. So I went, all right then. So I toddled over to St. Martin's because, of course, I would go there because it was central London. I wouldn't expect anyone to come down to Deptford for no reason then. And then I turned up and I, we looked at each other. And we're like, but we know each other. We oh. knew each other from dance clubs. We know. Yes, yes. <laughs> we knew each other from disco days. So that was really funny. And so we started to talk about what were we interested in? What did we want to do? And so we asked around to see if there were any other black people doing similar courses to us in London. And so the four or five other people that we'd heard of, we started to meet. So there was myself and Martina who were in Goldsmiths and then Robert a bit later. There was Maureen Blackwood who was at um, Polytechnic of Central London and Isaac was in St Martin's. And so we all said, oh, shall we try and do something together when we leave? So we were all like either in the same year or Isaac, I think was maybe one year below us or ahead, I can't remember. So that was the plan to see if we could make some shorts together. And then I just thought, oh, I need to actually earn some money. <laughs> I, I love I love that there. You're building your community. You're building your network. Yes, yes. Well, you know, and it's really weird because, you know, when at that point I, I stroke, we, we didn't know what you weren't meant to do. Mm -hmm. We didn't know what the right way was. Therefore, we didn't know what the wrong way was. We just yeah. did it. Mm -hmm. And so at the same time, I was coming to the end of the degree and I just thought, oh, Maybe I should try and get some work. And I don't know what made me do it. I just wrote to a couple of um, production companies that had been set up since the advent of Channel 4. So been, there were a few more places to apply, not just the BBC. Yeah. And I met these this 
honestly, these amazing people at a company called um, RPM, and they made lots of music docs and uh, they did talk shows. A lot of it was quite political one way or another, but a lot of it was just entertaining as well. And they'd come out of the uh, community programming unit at the BBC. So they came with quite a particular ideology. Yeah. Uh, I went and met them and they were just like, well, we don't really have a job for you. Sorry. And then they sort of got in touch and went, well, why don't you just come and be a trainee editor? And I was put in with this amazing guy called Peter Alton. And so we, I was literally, I had no clue what I was doing. No clue. Did you even know what a trainee editor really meant as well? Not really. I mean, we no. made little films, but we they were on Super 8. So this was still film day. So we were shooting stuff on 16 mil film with a steam yeah. back and <laughs> I had to learn how to do trims. And <laughs> I mean, honestly, and then they did a lot of OB stuff, a lot of recording of music concerts. I had the best time, I literally the best time. I was earning what to me felt like an enormous amount of money. And um, they were really good to us when we were setting up Sankofa. They used to give us um, the ends of reels of film. So when we shot, went out and shot demonstrations and interviews, we, we were using their old using, stock. Yeah, using their um, So it was just brilliant. And then we applied for money to the GLC was starting to give money to some arts organisations. And we applied for some money and we got some money to make some films. And this was also at the same time, I think it had been running a couple of years then, that the ACTT, which was the precursor to Beck to the union, they were in negotiation with Channel 4 and the BFI to start funding groups of... Uh, film and TV workers up and down the country who wanted to work independently. Okay. So you basically got given lumps of money over and you, there was a three-year commitment. So you could organise a programme of work over that three years. And it was called the workshop movement. And they were all like from Newcastle to Birmingham to Wales to London. There were two or, two or three black groups. There were Asian groups. They were, it was um, an amazing and amazing movement. And we all met each other and shared footage and ideas and everyone got paid the saves. So it was very egalitarian. It was, And it just meant that we got to make quite a few films in a short space of time. Yeah. Much to our amazement, travelled the world, won prizes, provoked debate. People wrote essays about. And we were young kids. We were like 23 doing this. Did you even have any inkling of like what, what you were achieving? No, because <laughs> that's quite something, isn't it? Like it's all because it, it's it sounds like it's just like of like things just rolled on. Like this came along, so then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and you're traveling the world and winning awards. It's it, did you even comprehend that actually this was such an incredible thing that you were a part of? No, no. We used to meet in McDonald's. And, <laughs> I love that. And it was like, oh, you're supposed to have a company for this money to go into. We're like, all oh, right. <laughs> We were literally, we just finished uni. So we yeah. 21, setting stuff up when you're 22, you're getting on with this. And as I said, sort of at the beginning, we didn't know what you were meant to do. Mm -hmm. So we just did it. None of us had any connections to the film industry. None of us had any uncles, aunties, anything to introduce us to anyone, to give us mm -hmm. a leg up. 
zero. It was all instinct. We were learning as we were going on. And and I suppose a lot of the work that was coming out of the workshop movement was quite oppositional at the time to what was going on in the country. And and a lot of the stories we wanted to tell were shining a light in corners of the world where we inhabited that you didn't really see. And we, our main thing was we wanted to show people from diverse backgrounds, not just as prostitutes and robbers. It was really as simple as that. Yeah. But we also wanted to do it with quite an artistic bent because those were the backgrounds we were coming from. So a lot of the work was quite experimental to begin with. Mm. And uh, as time went on, it became a bit more traditional. And then I started to do work with Gurinder Chadda and we did a short and then we did the feature film Bargy on the Beach and... You know, so it's a progression, but when you're in the middle of doing it, you're not really aware of that progression. It's not like there, well, there wasn't for me, maybe people do it now, there wasn't a career path. No. Was was there a moment though, Nadine, where you went, ooh, I'm kind of making it here. I'm like, no, no. Never. Because I think the thing is, I was always acutely aware that there weren't that many people like me doing it. So the sense of achievement was always quite bittersweet because Mm. I think maybe some people think it's really cool if if you're the only one doing things that you're special. For me, it never felt like that. It was always like, but there needs to be other people around. Yeah. I don't ever want to be the only woman in the room. I don't want to be the only black person in the room. I don't want to be the only black working class woman in the room. It's really sad. And it means actually you're quite restricted. You can feel that and you can have a lot of pressure on you because then you end up being a spokesperson for lots of things that really you're not that equipped to be. Mm. You know, and all eyes, all eyes are turning on you for answers and solutions. And, and you're like, yeah. know, I'm trying to work it out myself. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, trying and to, I and... still am, you yeah. know. Well, some of those issues are not gone away, right? So, no, I mean, and no. that's really sad. I can mm. hand on heart say I'm still having conversations today that I had 30 years ago. Yeah, that's a depressing Jeez. fact. But it um, is. Things have moved on in many ways. Yeah. Not in others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's, I think, probably a whole other conversation <laughs> that we could go in depth probably, to. Probably. Yeah. So, you're traveling the world, winning awards. Mm. When. Do you when does the BBC the stint in Scotland with your mm. with your high with your Highland stories from childhood <laughs> come come to fruition? Did you did you leave being essentially what you were kind of an I suppose a small independent startup to then go and do the job in the Beeb or was that before? How did that? No, it was sort of it felt quite a natural thing to do because um after doing Bargy on the beach and uh, I was really interested in what was going on in South Africa at that time, Um, just before Mandela got released. And, you know, our films when we were in Sankofa, we were always being invited to, there was a big film festival that used to be had there. And we always used to say, no, our our films are not going to that country unless we can all go through the same door. And at that point we couldn't. And so things started to change quite rapidly. And I got invited to go with a couple of other people. Um, one of them was Trix Worrell, actually, who wrote Desmond's. Um, and uh, we went and I met some incredible people from all different backgrounds who who were all part of making change happen under the most difficult circumstances you can imagine. Mm. 
And uh, to cut a long story short, Mandela got released. Um, there were programs being set up in South Africa by a wonderful producer called Jeremy Nathan. He'd managed to persuade the, one of the broadcasting companies that they had to put up some money for training and to make some short films. And then I managed to persuade Channel 4 to match that money. So we basically set up to make, they were called Short and Curlies then, some short films in South Africa with South African filmmakers who up until that point hadn't been allowed to. Wow. And we made some amazing films. They went to festivals all over. One of them won Best Short in um, at Venice Film Festival, Portrait mm -hmm. of a Young Man Drowning. And, you know, it was just an amazing period of my life where I was backwards and forwards to South Africa. But sort of at that same time, I had a couple of kids quite close together. And I just thought, oh, I need to sort of stop for a little bit. Yeah, that's intense, isn't it? When you've got two young children yeah. and you're juggling, travelling yeah. and work and commitments and being a parent. and Yeah, it was yeah. a lot. It was yeah, like, that, that is a lot. <laughs> it was exciting and brilliant people and brilliant projects. But I just thought, oh, maybe, maybe just calm it for a little bit. Mm. And fortunately... I was doing some teaching on ERV, which is the European Producers Network. So I did that, which again was brilliant because it means I've got lots of contacts across Europe from those days. And I got asked if I was interested in working at the BBC. And to be honest, it had never crossed my mind. Not even from the day that I'd graduated, it was just never felt like it would be a place for me because in my head it was just for people who'd been to Oxford or Cambridge and yeah. stuff way and behaved a certain way and yeah. I definitely wasn't that but again it was a time of change where organizations started to see the value of having different types of people as part of the staff and um, Andrew Calderwood was just about to leave Barbara McKissick had just taken over I said come on you do films we do we want to develop some films I wanted to learn about television and so I started to work for BBC Scotland. Wow. So did you have to move as well? Were you? Did you move? No, I no. didn't move. I stayed. They had a base in London. Okay. They, so okay. So you didn't have to move family or anything. No, That's good. no. But I, I travelled quite a bit on the track. Mm. You know, it was a lot of the writers were based out of London then. Yeah. That may yeah. have changed now. So yeah. yeah. And I learned a lot from those people. I learned really a lot. I learned what an amazing institution the BBC is. I mean, obviously there's issues with it, but overall, the people I worked with, totally dedicated, super smart, very willing to share information. You know, you get access to people and places that I don't know how you do it otherwise, unless it's via the BBC. Mm -hmm. And I learned, I learned mm -hmm. about television. I didn't know about television before. No, it was a whole different world, right? Your world to that point had been all film. Exactly. Very sad. The, the worlds of film and TV did not match. Yeah. And uh, and for me, that was quite interesting because I'd been teaching in Europe, you know, especially when you're working with countries where the language isn't as um, well known around the world. Their production companies nearly always did film and television because economically that was the only way they could survive. You couldn't just rely on doing film. Mm. So for me, when I'd come back to doing, like, working in the UK, it was like, oh, um, maybe you can combine the two. So from very early days, I was thinking about, well, how can you run a company or how can you 
combine your love of storytelling and make it okay to tell some stories that are for two hours and some stories that are for eight they're different Uh, so I was always thinking about that so when I left it made sense to start working with companies that wanted to do both I mean now it seems really normal I know and that's the thing isn't it it wasn't yeah it wasn't and it seems your career has always been at the heart of change in that way. Like it seems as though you you always maybe that's because you're so inquisitive as well about the world and you're you want to w- work in that way and have those kind of people around you. But it seems as though you're always part of where the innovation's happening in the industry. And then, as you say, they were so separate then. But then to start to see the merger of film and television and, and as you say, you can tell stories in different ways and for different lengths. Actually, that's quite I imagine quite an exciting place to be to suddenly start to see these kind of two worlds collide. Yeah, really exciting. And I like, you know, I like figuring out with people, you know, is this this story that warrants two hours or does it really warrant longer than that? And I just think it's really important not to stretch things out just for the sake of it. You know, Mm -hmm. things have a natural end often and let them have that natural end. And and people have different skills. Not everyone can work out you know an eight part or six part series they can't no that's a long time right that's a really long time to write a story for and even then you know there's been such a change here you know now it's more following the american system but without the american money so it never quite matches it it's sort of half and half you have Mm. you have writers rooms but they don't last for as long and there's not as many writers in it it's quite interesting the way things are shifting and changing shape over time so you have to try and keep up with what's going on and sometimes yeah. you're a little bit ahead and more often than not you're a little bit behind sort of yeah. scuffling to catch up with everyone yeah. but it's interesting it just means it's never boring yeah well that is true and and well and never boring because then you set up you set up your own company this was yeah. with Amanda what what, yeah. what led you to that decision kind of yeah well she, uh, she was at a company called Leopard and uh, they used to come and pitch ideas to me. I just really liked what they were doing. And so when I left the BBC, I didn't want a full-time job for a bit. I didn't. Mm. So um, they said, would I come and work there a couple of days a week with them? Ah, okay. Great. This is great. And then after a couple of years, I thought, because I've mainly always had my own company one way or another. Mm. And Amanda left first and then I left not long after. And then we said, oh, shall we work together? So we did. And nice. Ever since. And, it's and, and has that always been a natural partnership as well? Has that been a kind of meet, meeting of minds kind of just... Really easy, surprisingly mm. easy. It's just, yeah. just go, do you like that? Yeah, I like it too. Well, let's do it then. <laughs> I love <Yeah>. that. <laughs> that really. <laughs> And how did you approach kind of running the business together? Do you take on different roles or is it you find different stories each? How do you? Well, we do, I think people lean into their, their natural abilities um, or we try to. We we do find sort stories differently. We have a small development team who work with us now. But, we you know, we sort of divide it between us. We meet different people. Some people we meet together. We work on the same projects. We work on different ones and we swap ideas. Well, I think this. Do you think that? Yeah. It, it was quite organic. Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah. I don't know. I think other people think we think about it a lot. <laughs> but you don't. 
maybe we should. No, God, don't change it with like that, you know. And maybe we broken would, to, yeah. Yeah, and maybe we would, you know, if, when the company grows bigger, then we'd probably be forced to think more about it because you do have to hand over things out. You do have to let other people work to their strengths as well. So mm. see what happens when that day comes. Yeah. Well, you obviously had um been so long as well with it, with Netflix biggest ever UK feature acquisition that did that feel like a big deal at the time did it do you know what again I mean because it didn't start out like that you know I think we're also used to having Netflix in our lives now it's a relatively short time ago when no one knew what it was mm. and you know initially that film was backed first by the BFI over a, quite a long period in development there oh uh, was it okay and written by Che Walker. And uh, and then Film 4 came on board very quickly once um, the BFI would said yes to the production money and they liked the script. Um, Tinge came on to direct it and uh, we were lucky enough to get Michaela Cole in the lead and Arinze Kenny. And we, it just felt like something that there was such a huge will to get it made. We, we never quite had enough money to do what we wanted, but we did it. We did mm. it. And we were part of a, a group called the Great Eight, something like that, where the BFI took to can tra trailers of projects that were coming out of the UK. Look, look out for these projects that are coming. And ours was one of those. So we were just at the beginning of editing. So a very quick trailer was done and it was shown and, I think within two days, Netflix said they wanted it. And then lots of phone calls. We weren't even in Cannes. <laughs> Were you not? <laughs> we had no clue this was going to happen. And so they came on board during the editing process. And I, I've got to say, it was all pretty seamless. Yeah. You know, yeah. working with them, we were still working with the BFI, we were still working with Film 4. It just worked. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Isn't that incredible and actually just that all those partners were in place and and also that they came on at quite a late stage if you were already editing that actually they as you said they were just they loved it that must have been a bit of a whirlwind was it just yeah well they saw the material and liked it I, yeah. I, I assume mm. it was a whirlwind but you know what when you're in the middle of doing things you just have to get on with it I think mm. if you think about it too much it could be overwhelming yeah we couldn't we just did it and and it was weird because sort of before the very end of that, I had to go off because I was starting to work on Joe all alone. Uh, okay. I had to be in Ireland for like three or four months. So it was like literally one thing into the next thing, which is great because you, again, you just get on with it. You're having fun. You're telling stories. You're doing what you want to do. So even though it might be hard work, you don't complain because it's what you want and yeah. you're enjoying it. Yeah incredible I love that and um, I, I can't not do this podcast and talk about unsaid stories as well yeah I, I'd love to know obviously it, it's come about because there was obviously the global and is still the global Black Lives Matter movement how did the idea for this come about was it as a direct result of that movement or was it already an initial idea what what was the inspiration behind it okay like everyone else I was sitting at home watching the telly, you know, George Floyd had been murdered. We had COVID, you know, I'd flip between BBC News, Sky News, CNN, all of this stuff. You know, it was quite overwhelming for a lot of people. 
we've got to say something about this. What can we say about this that's immediate, that's not something that you start developing now and you see it in three years' time? We need to do it. And so we wrote up a page pitch. Initially, it was pitched as monologues, gets because ah. you could do it quick. You know? Yeah, and that's what you wanted. You wanted something quick to address yeah. what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and amazingly, ITV came back really quickly. I did not expect it to be ITV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they went, "We, you're right, we should be doing something, but we think it should be more than a monologue. We were like, oh, okay. And they said, well, we're actually doing some based lockdowns to COVID stories. They were doing, they'd already started the process of that. And they said, why don't you do that? So we're like, okay. And they said, but we need it in five weeks' time. Oh, my gosh, five weeks! Five weeks from literally from conception to TX was five weeks. What? So we, of course, went, yeah. Of course. (laughs) So we basically got in touch with writers that either we were working with or wanted to work with or and said, look, can you come up with a 10, 15-minute story that's inspired by about Black Lives Matter or COVID or a combination of the, just tell us what you might like to do. And I think every, because people, you couldn't really work, you could write, you couldn't, people weren't filming then. People couldn't even leave their front door then. Yeah. Locked down. Yeah. And, you know, people just came on board and it just went, yeah, I want to do it. Um, so we got four stories. They were written in a week. They were script edited and any changes were done the next week. We were cast in that same week and crew in. They were shot the week after, edited, and then they were on the week after that. And it's a really strange experience because we never met anybody face to face. It was all done via Zoom down the line. Wow. So the only people who were allowed in the room filming were the actors, the DP, and the COVID officer. (laughs) Everything else was outside. That's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. So the fact they came together and look as good as they do and is is a credit to everyone who got involved. And I think the reason they work and really touched people, I've had, I mean, at that time, I had so much feedback from family, friends, people I don't know. It's because it was a chance to just say what needed to be said. Yeah. People said, from the heart, what they wanted to say about various subjects. And the fact that ITV had the commitment to put them on prime time was quite incredible, actually. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, we did that. And it was just a world, it was a whirlwind. Yeah, I can imagine that must have been completely insane when they said, yeah, on you go, five weeks, off, you yeah. know, make it and happen. It How do we do this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got to get the stories read and got to get it produced, got to get it, got to get the cut. Like, that must have been crazy. Yeah, but we had a brilliant team, you know, we suddenly, because no one was working. Yeah. And I think also because it it will have resonated, right? It will have resonated. People needed to tell their stories. It was an outlet. It was, it was providing them with a vehicle to tell totally. important stories. Diverse crew with off-the-scale expertise, who wanted to make it work, so we found ways to make it work yeah. and tell these brilliant stories with fantastic actors, directors, writers, 
and we'd be watching we would watch as it was they were being shot it was incredible it was an amazing experience born out of terrible circumstances yeah yeah well what an incredible experience and important work that happened by you and the rest of the team um Nadine I could literally talk to you all day I really could but we're coming to we're coming to the end of the podcast but I'd love I've got a couple more questions for you one is what advice would you give to people looking to get into the industry I've yeah I think about this a lot I think if you're from a diverse background there's no better time to get in this industry I can't overstate that actually because it's not that long ago where it felt almost impossible for people from different backgrounds, working class, black, brown, to get in this. And it was really hard, really mm. hard. Now, over the past five, six years, there's been many schemes put in place. You've got screen skills, you've got regional projects going on that are encouraging different types of people with different skills to enter the industry because we need them. And I think everyone recognises that having a variety of voices only makes things better yeah 100 and, and that's the thing that I think if we take away anything from what's happened I'm really hoping that doesn't change yeah I think also I'd say if you've got a passion follow the passion mm. if you're lucky enough to be able to do that do it I think also find your team Find your gang, even if you all do different things, find people you can talk to because this is mainly a freelance industry. So mm. you can feel lonely at times. So if you've got your mates who are doing different things or similar things in the industry that you can talk to and share experiences, that's a brilliant thing to have. Yeah, your tribe matter, don't they? They really do. They're going to have your back. They're going to support you, encourage you. Yeah. Tell you stuff that you don't know, remind you things. And Mm. and I think just be be a good person. Just be a good person. You know, be kind, be helpful, be open to suggestion, be open to change. Mm. Bring someone with you. Yeah. Pull up the drawbridge just because you've made it. Yeah. I think the more you sort of share the love the better for everyone I know that sounds a bit hippie but I really mean it no I think it's so true and so important as well I yeah absolutely agree with you and I and I think we get as an industry we're getting better at that as well we're all getting better we're, we're getting better it's taken a long time yeah there's still a way to go we can yeah. all learn we can all do better but at least now you have wellness people on set. If, if you've got a big enough budget, everyone has a telephone number, but they can call if they've got something to say. Yeah. Or people are aware of different types of people being in the industry and just being a bit careful about what you say. Mm. And I think also just try and create opportunities for people so that they can come on and get up whatever this mythical ladder is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really good advice. And and final question, Nadine. Mm-hmm. Why do you love your job so much? I really do love my job. I know you can so tell as well. Like it it comes through so much. Like you've had such an incredible career with like these amazing whirlwind moments of your of your career with traveling the world and winning awards and, and uh, you know, talking about unsatisfied. There's all these moments where just but the the love that you have for the industry shines through. But but why why do you love it so much? You know, it's it's. I think it's as much about what your personality is like. 
I think I learned quite quickly I like variety. And this is, even though I do this technically the same thing, you know, mm. I read stories, I talk to people about their ideas, we work up ideas together, the writer goes off and does it, I comment, I try and help them make it be as good as it can be for them. I'm never bored. No. I'm never bored, which is a number one for me. I genuinely like people. I don't, I'm not brilliant in big crowds of people, mm. but I really like talking to people. Yeah. I really like getting to know people. Most of the time, I'll find out more about them than they will about me because I'm happy to listen. Yeah. I like finding out what makes people tick, what makes them happy, what's going on in the world for them. I just really like that engagement. And I like having different experiences yeah. and traveling. Yeah, yeah. So I get to do all of that in different ways. Yeah, well, there are very good reasons to love this industry, and uh, I cannot wait to see where you go next, what projects you work on, and deliver both either in TV or film. Nadine, thank you so much. It's been a complete joy talking to you today, and good luck with all of your next projects. And uh, and thank you for being on the podcast as well. Oh, my pleasure. It's been great. It's very, it's interesting for me to sort of look back in a way yeah. that. I <laughs> yeah I know because you never get the time to do that do you you don't have the time to reflect so yeah and it's been yeah really wonderful hearing your story so thank you Pleasure.